All right, so if you have a Bible, would you please open to Luke chapter two as we are going to read parts of the Christmas story in just a minute. For 2,000 years, the church has taken time to prepare their hearts for Christmas Day. This time is a season, and it has been called the Advent season for quite some time because the word Advent literally means arrival. And we're specifically talking about Jesus's arrival. Each week leading up to our celebration of the Christmas Eve service, we are looking at a different implication of the arrival of Jesus on the world and on our lives specifically. What does the arrival of Jesus mean? Well, each week we've been exploring different facets and different angles of that. And week one of Advent, we talked about hope, that God is a God who always fulfills his promises. Week two, we talked about peace, a peace that transcends your even understanding. It's like it doesn't make sense, and yet there is peace resonant in your hearts. And it reminds us that this is what happens when God is with us. Week three of Advent, as we lit the Advent candle this morning, signifying the beginning of a new week, we're going to talk about joy. Joy is the reality, something that wells up inside of us, when we realize the truth of the Advent story, which is this, God is for you. God will fulfill his promises, God will be with us, and God is for you. In fact, here's my preposition for today. The arrival of Jesus into the world signifies this reality that God is for you. And that is why it is good news, because God is not angry with you. Let me say that again. God is not angry with you. He's not up in heaven scolding you, rolling his eyes at your mistakes and your blunders. He isn't disinterested, disengaged, or distant. He's not mean, vindictive, or finger pointing. He does oppose sin and its corrosive and destructive force in your life and in our world. But please hear me when I say this. He is not against you. He is for you. He is wildly and relentlessly and deeply in love with you. As a good father loves their children, he sees all of who you are, and yet he still chooses you. And get this, he doesn't just say that. You wanna know what? Actions speak louder than words. God shows up. He doesn't just say he will, he does. He arrives in Matthew's gospel. When the angel arrives to proclaim to Mary and Joseph the Advent story, he quotes an ancient prophetic text from the book of Isaiah, which says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, God showed up ancient prophecy comes to life. There's a big fancy theological term for this. It's called the incarnation. It's when God stepped into the human story by taking on a human body. He subjects himself to the limitations and the constraints of a human being like you and me without ever losing an ounce of his divinity. It is a miracle. The God of the universe did not have to prove his love for us, but he did. And at great cost of himself. 
And listen, and that wasn't for himself. He doesn't get anything out of it. It's entirely a gift of grace, giving of himself for our good from his goodness. And so the Advent story, what? It shows us the character of God. He is the God who shows up. He is the God who rescues you from your sin, redeems you from your brokenness, and reconciles you back to himself. He is the only way. And this is the good news that causes great joy for all the people. Today, we're going to look at this idea a little bit more in depth to examine a part of the Christmas story that highlights that God is for us and the result of God's work in your life is joy and a joy that is like no other because it comes from someone and someplace else. Luke chapter two, verse one. You ready? I'm ready. So it doesn't matter if you are, because I am. Just kidding. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Luke, the author of this gospel account, intentionally includes details of the historical setting for this story. Why? Well, it's because he's not afraid for his claims to be verified. He wants you to know that this story actually happened. As strange as it may sound, there is a breaking in of heaven into our very familiar story. Including these details would be akin to saying something like, this all took place while President Biden was in office and Tina Kotek was governor of Oregon. What it's supposed to do to the people, especially in the time in which it was written, is to cement this story in real life, in time, in space. To remind you of what was happening in that very space when Quirinius was governor and when Augustus was in power. This story happened. And Luke is not afraid of you going back and verifying the details and the historical setting of this account. Now, When you hear Caesar, what comes to mind? Let me show you a couple pictures of what comes to mind for me. (laughs) Little Caesar's pizza and a Caesar salad, typically overdressed also, by the way. Now Caesar, the real one, if he knew his legacy was going to be deduced to $5 pepperoni pizzas and romaine lettuce, He probably, if you had told him that, he probably would have had you crucified, right? Because the real Caesar and the many other Caesars that followed, um, they were extremely powerful human beings. Some of the most on the planet. Caesar Augustus in particular, the one that is in this story, was the first and according to many, the most significant Roman emperor 
you remember it was a republic before it became an empire, he changed that. Having replaced the republic with an imperial form of government, he expanded the empire to include the entire Mediterranean world, which is exactly the place that we are reading about in Luke 2. He established this famed idea of Pax Romana, or Roman peace, peace at the edge of the sword, peace as long as you follow the rules and you do what we tell you to do, peace. That's Pax Romana. He established a golden age of Roman literature and architecture. He was given the name Augustus, which means exalted one. <laughs> he, his title was conferred on him by the Roman Senate. If you were ever curious, kids, about where George Lucas found his inspiration for the fall of the Galactic Republic and the rise of the empire and the emperor himself, well, read Augustus's story because it's what inspires this fiction. In Rome, there is one who sits on the throne of the entire world. He is much more than salad and pepperoni pizza. He was proclaimed the exalted one, which confers not just a political authority over him, but also a religious authority. He actually refers to himself as Imperator Caesar Divi Filius, meaning Commander Caesar, son of the deified one. If you are the son of the deified one, what does that make you? The son of God. He initiated the imperial cult, meaning he started his own religion in the empire so that people could worship him. <laughs> Ego much? <sighs> Religious nationalism is nothing new. Um, Luke is very, very brilliant. Right, when he writes these things, is just simply mentioning Caesar Augustus. Everyone in his context would have known all of what I just shared with you that he himself claimed to be the eternal king, sitting on a kingdom of heaven throne as the son of God. That is who um, Caesar saw himself to be. And it is what the imperial propaganda machine spread all throughout the Roman Empire. So Luke is brilliant because he knows by just mentioning the name, all of that would come to mind. And yet also he knows as he mentions ancient prophecy about another king arising from a small little town of Bethlehem. Right there, there would be a juxtaposition of a true king from heaven and a pretender sitting on the throne in Rome. This is the introduction to the Christmas story. Now, Augustus was born into opportunity. He came from a family that was deeply connected to the Roman powers. He was the adopted great nephew of Julius Caesar, the heir of his estate and all the political power of Caesar. His arrival on the scene was chaos, backstabbing, civil wars, consolidation of power, elimination of political rivals. It was take and keep power by all means. This is the Roman way. He would be familiar with the palace and the political forum. But then there is Jesus. Luke points out that Mary and Joseph, by Augustus's decree, must return to their ancestral hometown for a census. Why? Well, because Caesar said so. Because a man in Rome speaks and his entire empire does what he says. He sends them home to register so that they can pay more taxes. Some things have also never changed, right? This is a display of the might and power of Rome. 
But listen, this is the plan of God, is that even though Caesar has this seemingly incredible power to manipulate and move and make anyone do what he says, God's plans still prevail. Because as he proclaims a decree that everyone must go home, he is in a strange way beginning to fulfill an ancient prophecy which predates Caesar about the true king of heaven arriving in this small little town of Bethlehem. Jesus is entering into the story in such an absolute incredible way. Caesar is born into pomp and circumstance, a royal line that launches him into power. Jesus is born in a stable, a trough for a bed to two poor minority nobodies in the small corner of that other king's empire. Listen, if you wanted to make up a story about a king of heaven entering into the world, which one would you choose, Rome or the Bible story? If you, the Roman story is seemingly a better story, more convincing, but this is particularly why I trust the Bible. Because you would never try to tell this story to convince the world that a true king of heaven has arrived. You would want him in the center of the empire. You would want him on the throne and in the palace, not in a forgotten little backwater corner of his empire. And yet this is precisely how the true king of heaven comes. He shows up in the most relatable way possible. Maybe one of you know what it's like to be royalty, to be a king, but I would venture to guess all of us in this room are normal people. (laughs) who identify more with Mary and Joseph than we ever would with Caesar. And so God chooses to enter into the story in the most relatable, humble way possible. He he chooses to arrive in a way that you and I can know that he is with us because he understands us, because he's walked in our shoes. This is what it means when the ancient prophetic text calls him Emmanuel. God is with us. He is for us. He is near. This Christmas, we reflect on the truth that he is the God that shows up and oftentimes in the most unexpected ways. And as we reflect on that truth, We think about this reality that although he may show up in some unexpected ways that might be hard to recognize, they are also the ways we most need him to show up. This is what he did 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. This is what he did to the people who are reading this story. And listen, he didn't just show up in their life then, he shows up in our life in the same way now. And this tells us that Advent is full of surprises. Back to Luke 2, starting in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, In the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah and the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. 
When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now there's nothing more mundane or ordinary in the first century than the profession of a shepherd. (laughs) This is astounding. And again, if you are making up this story, this would perhaps be the most unlikely group of people you would ever include. Their testimony would hold little value to the world around them. There's no advantage for Luke to include them in the story. Unless, of course, it's true. Surprise. (laughs) A host of spiritual beings from heaven arrive and pronounce the most significant event in human history is about to unfold. And it's a message that's given not to the palace, but it's given to some blue collar workers in the field somewhere in Bethlehem, just putting in their nine to five, right? We don't think or know if they've been fasting and praying in anticipation of this event. You could probably imagine they would think they would be the last people that God would choose to pronounce the arrival of the world's savior. And yet God shows up in an extraordinary way to very ordinary people. As you will see, the people all over the world, palace, um, temple, wherever you are, God does not leave them out of this story either. Good news of great joy for all the people. And yet, here goes out of his way to arrive to ordinary people like you and me. It's a surprise. Could you imagine how the shepherds must have felt? Put yourself there for just a moment. You are just at your normal job, washing dishes, end of your taxes, doing something on the normal every day, and all of a sudden, boom, a host of heaven appears, and you are the one told, hey, God has shown up, a savior has been born. Could you imagine how seen they must have felt? Just for a moment, right? Like they're most ordinary people, nothing extraordinary about their lives, and yet God sees them. This is true of us too. Listen, God isn't so busy running the universe that he cannot meet you at your most profound need also. Even if you think you are somehow not important enough to be noticed, valued, or seen, the Advent story is a surprise. He is for you too. In fact, he had a unique plan and purpose for these shepherds. Their story would be immortalized for all of time. And here we are reading their story. It's wild. It's absolutely wild, but it is the surprise of the Advent story. And there is more to come because not only is his arrival to people like the shepherds a surprise, not only is his arrival in a manger, in a humble circumstance, a surprise, but the message that he delivers is a surprise as well. In fact, maybe even more so. I bring good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This is heaven's first public statement about the gospel. And it is good news. Let's focus on that for a minute. I recently went to the Civil War football game. You know, ducks versus the little rodents, the the beavers, (laughs) beavers, sorry. I went to Gresham High School, home of the mighty gophers, um, mightiest of rodents. So, but I went to the Civil War game with a friend of mine. And as we were walking in, 
I was astounded, just like shocked at the reality of how many, uh, there's these guys at every single entrance and they've color coordinated too. 12 foot signs, bullhorn, telling everybody that they're going to hell unless they repent and turn back to God. And on the signs are the list of all of the different sins, right, that you would imagine that would be on those signs. And their message is that everyone walking into this game is going to hell and you need to come to Jesus. Now, I noticed also that they were wildly ineffective because as everyone was walking, they were like, I don't wanna be near that person. They were trying to avoid these people at all costs. Some people were even mocking them, but most people were just tuning them out. And as I walked past them, I just kept hearing the still, quiet, and silent whisper, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. And I started thinking about this, like, I agree theologically, sin separates us from God. The good news is that a savior has been born. We need to be saved. 100% agree. I understand the implications now and for eternity without coming to Jesus. However, heaven's methodology to communicate this is not that. (laughs) I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. A savior is born. And I just imagine what if these giant signs just had Luke 2, 10, and 11 on them? And what if the bullhorns just kept communicating? I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. What would happen? What would the result be? I don't know, but I beg someone to just try something different for once, right? All I know is is that what happens here in this story, the shepherds, when they hear the pronouncement of the good news, what do they do? They say, let's go find out what this thing is all about. Curiosity wells up inside of them. Something that is deep inside of their souls comes alive and says, let's go find this baby in a manger. And perhaps that's what this world needs is good news of great joy for all the people today in the town of David, a savior has been born. Perhaps what this world needs is a church that communicates the joy that Jesus brings into our life. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, his journey from atheism to faith, he titled it Surprised by Joy. Why? Because it was his experience with joy, a unique and particular kind of joy, the joy of heaven itself that changed his heart. It wasn't a rational argument. It wasn't an intellectual idea. It wasn't a Christian subculture taking over the dominant culture. It wasn't his awareness of guilt or shame. It was joy, a joy that he had never experienced and a joy that nothing but God could bring into his life. That is what led him to faith in Jesus. St. Augustine once said, our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. Like the shepherds, the Advent story taps into the deepest longing in every human heart to lean in and say, come, let us figure out what is this whole thing all about? There is something deep and hidden in every one of your hearts, a longing to find its rest in the arrival of Jesus in your life. And the result of that is this strange and surprising and otherworldly joy. And it beckons to you to come to the manger and find out what is this whole story about. It is good news and you will experience great joy that you yearn for. 
C.S. Lewis first experienced this joy by looking at a toy garden that his brother brought him. Strange, I know. But God speaks through strange sometimes ways. And he was wrestling with ways, how do I communicate what this is? Because when you're starting to talk about the characteristics of heaven, we're trying so hard to find the language to put to it, right? So he's trying to write what this joy means by reflecting on this experience when he first felt it. And I'm gonna read it and hopefully it makes sense because I think it ends with a very beautiful and powerful point. C.S. Lewis says this about the joy from heaven. I call it joy. As I stood beside a flowering currant bush on a summer day, there suddenly arose in me without warning, as if from a depth, not of years, but of centuries, the memory of the early morning at that old house when my brother had brought his toy garden into the nursery. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. Milton's enormous bliss of Eden, giving the full and ancient meaning to enormous, comes somewhere near it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But desire for what? Before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn. The world turned commonplace once again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. In a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. The quality common to these three experiences is that of an unsatisfied desire, which itself more desirable than any other satisfaction, I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world, but then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. Lewis, joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. He distinguishes between the happiness we can manufacture or experience and the joy which is a source entirely out of our power. The Bible calls this joy and it has a unique and enduring characteristic because it is found only in God. Joy in the Bible is difficult to define and it feels like words are inadequate. They fall short. It's this combination of being blessed, happy, experiencing pleasure and excitement and fulfillment. But since its source is God, it is also somewhat alien to our earthly experience. See, some things create shadows of the experience of joy and those experiences are not in and of themselves bad, but they can only point to a more incredible experience. They cannot embody all of what joy is in and of themselves. The Bible teaches us this, that joy is a fruit of the spirit. This is what Paul says in Galatians. Which means this, joy's source is God. It is something that you experience in your life as a relationship with God. As you walk with him and talk with him and enjoy a life in communion with God, it results in joy. When we say fruit of the spirit, have you ever seen a tree bear fruit because it was trying so hard? No. It's like, love, joy, no, that's not the case. It ex your true a tree produces fruit because it is connected to a source of life and nourishment. 
It is connected to something greater than itself. And the result of being connected to that thing is the fruit. The same is true of you and I in regards to joy. Do you want to experience joy from God alone? Joy from heaven? Be connected to the one who created you. And the quality of this joy is nothing that this earth can provide because it's of something else, which also means this. Are you you following me? If the joy is of God, it means that your circumstances on earth cannot take it away. If your joy is from a source that cannot be manipulated or changed, it's benevolently given to you and God himself, that means that our circumstances cannot steal it from us. And today, let's just be reawakened to that reality. You have access to the power of God in your life and you can experience joy, bottomless joy. But you say, well, pastor, like, but look at my life. I'm struggling here. I've got real issues in my life. Yes, the Bible also teaches us. First Peter chapter one, verse six. In all of this, you you, regret, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, this is where heaven meets earth. You experience trial and pain and suffering, and yet heaven comes into that very space and you can experience bottomless joy in the midst of great trial and suffering. You will, you live in a broken world, you will experience pain and suffering and hardship in this world, but you can also experience joy all at the same time. You're gonna do it one way or the other. Choose to walk through your pain with God and you will have something that nothing can take away. And listen, joy is not seasonal. You know that it's the happiest season, not for all. Some of you are not experiencing joy this season. Some of you have experienced profound loss this year or are going through profound difficulty joy and sadness. A quality of joy from heaven alone can be yours in the midst of this very hard and difficult season. It can all be yours. You simply just need to come to Jesus. Like the shepherds, lean in, be curious, show up to the manger, ask the question, what is all of this about? Walk with God. Psalm 1 It teaches us this idea, blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of sinners and stand in the seat of mockers and sit in the seat of, you know, transgressors and all the bad things, right? But blessed is the one whose delight is in the word of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. It says of that person, blessed, joy-filled, happy, he will be like a a plea, a tree planted by streams of water. What is that water? What is that stream? It is a constant source of life. And the promise of Psalm 1 is that it will, the tree will produce its fruit in season. Okay, now you don't have a harvest every season. There is winter and there is fall and there is hardship, but you will be sustained by the source of life, God himself, the Holy Spirit in and through you. And the result will be joy. This can be how you respond today. Come to Jesus. The joy that you and I have been talking about can be yours. And listen, if you're not feeling it, you're like, "Uh, I was there this week. Simply just raised my hand and said, guys, I need prayer. I'm preaching on joy and I'm not feeling it. 
right? It doesn't mean that it isn't in my life or a part of my life. It it means I need to be reawakened to the reality of the joy that I have. Perhaps that's you today. You need to come forward after the service and some of our elders are gonna be up here and they would love to pray over you. If you need a reminder of the joy you have in Jesus, come on up, raise your hand like I did and get prayer. Listen, you can be the herald of good news this week. Write them a card. Tell them that they have reason for good news of great joy, right? Or maybe it's not a card. Maybe you're like, eh, I don't wanna do that because I don't know anybody's address anymore. But you, you can pick up your phone, send them a text. You can actually do this thing called have a face-to-face conversation. You can be a herald of good news of great joy. Maybe it's gonna be at your awkward family dinner table in a week. And last, you can invite people to come and see Jesus. You maybe don't have all the words to say to communicate and articulate all of the complexity of the gospel. That's fine. Invite them to come hear it. Invite them to come experience it. 11, 1, 3, and 5 here. But there's also Christmas services happening all over the world. Invite people to that moment where they could come and experience the story of the good news. I wanna pray a blessing over you as we wrap up our, this time today. If you would like to receive the blessing, you can just stand up and simply open your hands. But what I wanna read over you is an ancient prayer from the apostle Paul himself who wrote in Romans. And I really pray this will be the word over your life for the next week. If you would like to receive it, simply open your hands. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Love you all. Merry Christmas. We'll see you on Christmas Eve. Have a great week.